Hi everyone, happy new year and welcome back to the Cranog. This week on the Folklore Scotland podcast, we're going to be looking at stories from the central belt of Scotland. So that's anything really from Dundee down to Edinburgh and then across to Glasgow. Okay. So I am going to be doing The Laird of Balmathy's Wife. And this is one from Angus um, and just, just outside Dundee, which I would argue is just touching on Central Belt um, and no more than that. But anyway, so it's a story that is um, about a changeling. And this is when the fair folk steal people, mostly children, away and they replace them with one of their own, which is identical in appearance. Um, the changeling is never quite the same as the real person and often the changeling children will never grow older. But this one is about changeling who is a adult. So in olden times, when it was the fashion for gentlemen to wear swords, the Laird of Balmachie went one day to Dundee, leaving his wife at home ill in bed. Riding home in the twilight, he had occasion to leave the high road and when crossing between some little romantic knolls called the Car Hills in the neighbourhood of Carlungi, he encountered a troop of fairies supporting a kind of litter upon which some person seemed to be born. Being a man of dauntless courage and, as he said, impelled by some internal impulse, he pushed his horse close to the litter, drew his sword, laid it across the vehicle, and in a firm tone exclaimed, In the name of God, release your captive. The tiny troop immediately disappeared, dropping the litter on the ground. The laird dismounted and found that it contained his own wife, dressed in her bedclothes. Wrapping his coat around her, he placed her on the horse before him and, having only a short distance to ride, arrived safely at home. Placing her in another room, under the care of an attentive friend, he immediately went to the chamber where he had left his wife in the morning. And there, to all appearance, she still lay, very sick of a fever. She was fretful, discontented, and complained much of having been neglected in his absence, at all of which the laird affected great concern, and pretending much sympathy, insisted upon her rising to have her bed made. She said that she was unable to rise, but her husband was undeterred, and having ordered a large wood fire to warm the room, he lifted the imposter from the bed, and bearing her across the floor as if to a chair, which had been previously prepared, he threw her on the fire, from which she bounced like a skyrocket and went through the ceiling, and out of the roof of the house, leaving a hole among the slates. He then brought his own wife, a little recovered from her alarm, who said that sometime after sunset, the nurse, having left her for the purpose of preparing a little candle, a multitude of elves came in the window, thronging like bees from a hive. They filled the room, and having lifted her from the bed, carried her through the window, after which she recollected nothing further, till she saw her husband standing over her on the car hills at the back of Kurlungi. The hole in the roof, by which the female fairy had made her escape, was mended, but could never be kept in repair as a tempest of wind happened always once a year, which uncovered that particular spot without injuring any other part of the roof. The end. Yeah, so an adult changeling, which I feel like we don't see that often. And I feel like there's always stories where changelings get chucked onto the fire and they shoot through the roof because that was like a way to cure a changeling child. Um, But this one is an adult. Yeah, what I don't get is, you know, they know these stories. Like, you throw in the fire, and they disappear up the roof. Why do they ever throw them on a bonfire outside? They're just making holes <laughs> in all the rooms. 
you'd think they would have learned from like the first one or two times it happened. Like, you know, Jim down the road, he, he had to change, like, and he made it that hole in his roof never fixed, you know. Never you, learn. No, never learn. Never think, oh, we'll go out for a barbecue, my dear. And then, <laughs> whoops. <laughs> They're fairies, they're magic. Surely they've got better modes of transport than carrying the person. It's more elegant than having the person in like a cart though, isn't it? Yeah, but they could just do a bit of magic or what, make them teleport them, I don't know. <laughs> make them float, they can fly, can't they? One wet left through the roof. You know, you I feel think... like we're getting into details here. <laughs> you know, I feel like they've got better modes of transport there. Right? You would be suspicious at a litter at the Scottish countryside. I feel even back then it was not a normal mode of transport. Yeah. They wouldn't be sitting by it by being like, oh, it's fine, it's just Cleopatra on around, you know. <laughs> I had a point of a story related, just on the ceiling um issue that it never it, it could never be repaired because of the gust of wind. I feel like we did another story about a changeling that was a kid and it was the same thing. Is this is this a changeling thing that they affect yeah. repairs? <laughs> I wonder, like... Maybe that's why that bit in our roof keeps looking <laughs> even when we get it fixed. Once upon a time, had a changeling. Yeah, that mm -hmm. could be it. I wonder if it's... um To me, it feels like that's been part of a story. um, And it's, like, it's been passed down and adapted. So, like, maybe the one with the child going through the ceiling and the ceiling not repairing was, like, the original and it's kind of become regionalized and changed a little bit. So like for them, it was the child and then the people that. Were... I also like the visual image just of a fairy shooting through the roof. It probably makes a good illustration. Yeah. To add to bits of like a, just a kind of like a firework style image. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exactly how I imagine it. I did get distracted by thinking my parents also have a leak and theirs used to be a school. It's more likely there's a changeling where it's school, you know, lots of That kids is like, there you go. Listeners, here's a new thing. Write to us and let us know if you have a no, whole... No, we're not a riffing company. We <laughs> <laughs> do everybody's riff repairs. That could be a great sponsorship for the next episode. <laughs> so we wouldn't be back this week, but unfortunately we've got 200 riffs to fix. <laughs> Mila's up a ladder. What mischief did Changeling get up to? Because I feel like in this tale it was just a bit... Well, yeah, what of the tales they get oh. caught, but... I know once some of them just like cry and go through lots of food and nappies and everything mm -hmm. like that and just exhaust the mothers to cause grief. Um, but I don't know what, and like sometimes they just don't grow up and just stay as children, I think. Yeah. And I think it's generally just to cause mischief rather than anything else. Whereas this guy was just kind of like something's a bit off with my wife. You know, children changelings were kind of a way for people to. I mean, either stigmatize or understand learning difficulties. And I wonder if adult changelings are the same. But I think I just did a quick bit of reading there. And women are more likely in stories to be replaced by a changeling. And the symptoms of being a changeling in adults are different from the symptoms in children, in that with adults, they tend to actually be like just irritable and angry as opposed to anything else mm. I just thought it was an interesting yeah I think changelings ones can always be a bit of a a difficult one when you get into it because there is 
quite a lot of background to it that could be just seen as, you know, mean stories kind of victimizing mm -hmm. different people or people with problems that would identify as kind of medical problems now but weren't then. But there's also probably a good amount of stories that were just about, ah, oh, look what the little fairy scamps have been up to now. Yeah. So it's, 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 you know, it was fun tales, but also there, there likely yeah, there, was a more there's a kind of context underpinning to the Changeling's idea. Yeah, there's a kind of a context to it that we need to bear in mind when we're talking about Changelings, yeah. I think. Yeah. It is a very kind of sad background mm. to the, the folklore. I think it's probably... I think it's the saddest folklore that we have, just because it's got that like real life mm. tie. Hundred percent. <laughs> it's just sinister backstory, whereas now it's it's like a cute story of like, oh, you know, a kid got rescued and the changeling is yeah. out the window like a firework. My wife well, shot up the like window. <laughs> yeah, and I've got my child back and all this, and it's like a heartwarming tale. But actually, yeah. back then, not so much. Mm. Shall we move on to something hopefully happy? That, that cheer here. <laughs> yeah. So I was in Leith in Edinburgh a few days ago, and this story of the fairy boy of Leith seems like a perfect match for today's episode. Um, the story has been told and retold many times over, and it's appeared in works from Sir Walter Scott and even letters from Captain Burton in the 1640s during his stay in Leith. And as such, I imagine this tale has likely grown arms and legs in each retelling, but it is still quite a fun story and one that I enjoyed researching. The story tells of a young, adventurous boy living in the port of Leith with his mother. Being an only child and having lost his father years earlier, he didn't really have anyone else to play with, so he often explored the port and its narrow alleys and other hidden away spots as a way to pass the time. One day he was playing along the cliffs and he discovered an entrance to a cave with something glowing in the back. He ventured inside and was stunned to see a gathering of fairy creatures in the cave, which magically became larger the further he went inside. The fairy folk, seemingly unused to seeing or interacting with humans in the area, were initially wary of the boy. However, he showed them he was not a threat and they eased to his presence. The fairies were even quite intrigued by him and soon befriended him. Completely engrossed in his magical surroundings, the boy played and danced and feasted with the fairies, and they exchanged stories. He told them about the outside world, and they told him about the fairyland. As Leith is a very busy area, the fairies never really went outside in fear of retaliation from the humans, and, though, and so these stories were very exciting. Day turned to night, and nights turned into many nights. And the boy eventually lost track of time, hiding away in the fairy cave and enjoying the company of his newly found friends. Meanwhile, however, his mother had no idea that her son was safe and sound, and she feared the worst. She was distraught, thinking how she had now lost her son not long after losing her husband. But hearing the stories of his life in Leith, the fairies soon began to understand how his presence would be missed in the human world, and the longer he stayed in the magical realm of the cave, the harder it would be for the boy to return home. Though they would miss him, the fairies knew he must go back to his mother, and so they agreed that while he will leave to be with the humans, he was free to return, should he want to, every Thursday night at 11pm to once again dance and play with the fairies on Carlton Hill. Knowing that the boy may choose not to return, the fairies also gifted him a small vial of fairy dust as a token of their friendship. The boy returned home and he was reunited with his mother, 
and her and the townsfolk, who of course have heard the story of the missing boy, were also relieved that he was found safe and sound, though he would not tell anyone where he was. For many years after, the boy continued to visit the fairies every Thursday night in secret. However, soon news began to spread of his weekly disappearances. This was also the time when Captain Burton met the boy, and while talking to him, he suddenly had to leave without anyone really noticing, and he seemed to disappear from the captain's company. The captain ran outside to try and trace his steps, as surely he couldn't have gone far. However, he couldn't see him, so he went back inside. This happened a few more times, and each time, despite being in crowded rooms or outdoors in plain sight, or even with smaller groups of people, suddenly the boy would vanish, and no one would be able to recall him leaving or the direction he went in. However, he was said to occasionally be spotted up Calton Hill, leading to tales of his meeting place with the fairies. As time passed, people also noticed the boy, who was now a young man, seemed wise beyond his years, as well as being very notably kind and generous, something which is thought to be a side effect of his time spent with the fairies. As we've heard from other tales in this podcast, and Folklore Scotland's other podcasts, of course, um, the fairies have a way of leaving their mark on people, whether it's through granting them protection, magical powers, preventing aging, or really anything else. In this case, it seemed the boy had also developed an ear for music, becoming an amazing drummer, something that he told Captain Burton about how he played the drums in Carlton Hill, presumably for the fairies. But it's that in Carlton Hill was the part that really sparked the captain's further line of inquiry as to how the boy could get inside the hill the boy one day confessed to his visit to the fairy realm via an opening at the foot of Calton Hill. He told stories of the nights spent with the fairies and the trips they magically took, even abroad, the people that he met and, and played music for, and all their many adventures. Stunned by this story, the captain offered the boy money and wine in exchange for a trip so he could meet the fairies. However, while the boy was happy to answer any questions the captain had, he would always disappear for 11pm on a Thursday, and never take anyone with him to the fairy realm. These were his friends, and he couldn't be bought to reveal their secrets. Since then, Leith's reputation as a place of wonder and magic has attracted many artists and poets and writers. Perhaps they were all hoping for a bit of fairy dust to come their way and inspire them. But to round off this magical tale, I do also have a bit of truth for us to consider. That back in the 18th century, a Jewish dentist and podiatrist a very interesting career path. Um, his name was Herman Leons, and he lived in Edinburgh with his wife. And he had appealed to the local council for a piece of land where him and his wife could eventually be buried so as not to be buried on a Christian graveyard. The piece of land that he found was on Carlton Hill, and he was granted permission to use that site as a private tomb. Now, some 200 years later, the site of that burial was rediscovered as two men visited the top of the hill and said that they found what they thought was a rabbit hole and dug deeper to discover a tomb. Uh, the description of the tomb also suggests that it may once have been part of a cave, and this is the cave that is thought to be the fairy realm where the boy, um, well, the fairy realm that the boy referred to in his tales. It has a 12 meter long passageway leading to the tomb, which is approximately three by four meters roughly. Um, and there's actually loads of articles about the tomb online, um, but the burial site is also believed to be the first Jewish grave in Edinburgh, so it does carry its own historical significance, alongside having loose ties to the fairy boy of Leith story. What a creepy story. I know! <laughs> the fact 
that he was able to just go and party with the fairies. Zero consequences know. that yeah, we didn't, know of. Didn't age like a hundred years and yeah. die when he walked into a church like the other people. He just having yes. a grand old time. Went abroad with them to Tormelinus. Yeah. <laughs> Played the drums. What time? What was he doing? What did he have on the fairies? That's what I'm wondering, because all the other fairy <laughs> stories we've had, the fairies always want something in return. But I think these guys, maybe after years of just having too much infighting with humans <laughs> and other creatures, just decided just to get along for once. Maybe like, like since these ones were like leaf, you know, they might have been like, like the urban fairies changing <laughs> from like the countryside lot. We're going to be the cool new fairies. <laughs> Maybe they went to uni, they're the student equivalent of fairies. Are you, you, know? are you telling me that the fairies were gentrified? I think they were gentrified, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I do really like the like the real world tie there as well. It's all it always like scratches a bit in my brain when we have like a a real world bit that just links in nicely with a folktale that like just just a little kernel of like this could be real. It's really nice. I don't, I was so stunned when they were talking about, oh, there is actually a tomb in this hill and it could have been part of an even bigger cave. And when you think about, you've got 12 meters of passageway and then an opening that's essentially a square. It's like, what, three by four by four. Mm -hmm. But to a little boy, that would have been massive. Yeah. I don't know what he saw in that cave, but it does seem to match very, very well. Because in the story, it was about, you know, he saw a light at the end of this, like, long tunnel, which 12 metres, fair enough, fair enough, a long tunnel. And then as he ventured inside, it got bigger, which is the tomb. Yeah. So it, it is possible. It's possible. And then many, many, many years in the future, it becomes a mausoleum. And, you know, they can't take you travelling. The other stories, you know, that guy that woke up in the King of France's cellar. Oh, yeah, that's true. Although they did just leave it there. Rather than bring it back, you have to explain to the same frads how you ended up. <laughs> they do, like, the fairies for the most part are to be feared and respected, but there are, like, like this story, little surprising moments where they do nice things or they're just, like, neutral. So there's a story about, um, it's at Shahalian, it's about these two men that have hunchbacks and, like, they live opposite sides of the hill. And every Sunday, one of them goes to the other side to, like, see his friend, visit his friend at his house. And then one day, the one that lives on the east side of Shahalian goes for a walk to visit his friend. And he comes across a cave and the cave is full of fairies who are singing. And he's like, whoa, this is so pretty. Um, So he starts singing with them, which at first you're like, bad move, bro. You're a way to lose, like, 12 years of your life or something. Um, but the fairies really like the singing voice, and because they like the singing voice so much, they offer him, like, they, they say that they'll grant him one wish. And he's like, oh, I want to be able to stand up straight. I want to lose the hump on my back. And they're like, cool, we'll do that. So they do that. They send him on his way. He shows up at his friend's house with a straight back, and his friend's like, I want a piece of that. So he goes to the fairy cave and sings the song, and the fairies are like, bro, you suck. We're going <laughs> to curse you. So they curse the guy. Um but like for a moment there they were doing really well <laughs> they really were that, that's <laughs> I didn't know that story that's amazing <laughs> they have their moments they have their moments and this one that 
the one that Mila just told, I think, is yeah. a good example of them just being. I don't think they're always that like good or evil. They're just normally like mischievous or what they do has negative consequences, but isn't necessarily always intentional. Like they like to have a part with people. It's not necessarily their fault that, mm. you know, a day in their realm is a hundred years in the human one. And yeah. then like Thomas the Rhymer, the fairy queen was quite nice to him. Like yeah. she let him go and gave him the ability never to tell a lie, which don't know whether it's a gift or a curse, but like it seemed to do him well enough. Um, I think the fairies are a very good metaphor for like the forces of nature because like nature as itself is not bad. Like nature is a very good thing. It's very beautiful, but it is also volatile. And if you're not careful and you mess around with it the way that people sometimes mess with the fairies, it will kill you. Mm-hmm. Which the fairies will do if you mess with them. Well, these ones are nice fairies. The, these fairies are the equivalent of a nice sunny day. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> where it's like in- well that also makes sense you know it's a fun parallel it's like a nice sunny day it's a rarity in Scotland <laughs> <laughs> nice day <and> sunny days <laughs> I'm going to chat a bit about Roslyn Chapel and um, it is Above all, a most a beautiful, amazing church with fantastic sculptures, a real testament to the architects, stonemasons, and the earls or lords who first commissioned it. Um, it took a long time to make the first person who commissioned He died by the time they'd got to even the stage at the moment. And the finished chapel now is not even what the full original plan was. It planned to continue out and have two further wings was contained to the chapel on that end because the budget it was just so insanely stupid that it could never really be finished um and what is there is some of the most beautiful carving and that you'll ever see which is makes sense why so many myths and legends have risen up around it and a lot of probably international people will recognize rosin chapel as having featured in the dan brown books and the da vinci code and it is said to be um, a site of the Templars and possibly the resting place of the Holy Grail. Um, and the Sinclair family who were involved in the construction of uh, Rosalind Chapel were said to actually have connections in, in history with the Crusaders. So um, there is some the historical merit to some of that argument. And then there is also the crypt underneath um, of which the main crypt is sealed, but there's also said to be a further crypt, an older crypt beyond that, uh, which there's never been found an entrance to. It's meant to contain the Holy Grail. So there's some fun there, and, and that's probably the legend a lot of people will know about who do not know more about folklore or haven't been to Rosalind Chapel and taken an amazing tour that is there to hear about the brilliant history and legends behind it. Um, I also happen to be drinking a a whiskey that I got there when we went for a nice wander about there and jumped into a tour and heard some things uh, when we were there on our honeymoon just after our wedding. Yeah. So it's a, a beautiful place I'd highly recommend it. Uh, amongst all the legends of Templars and the Holy Grail and um, theories about placement of objects in the in the church, you know, there's a uh, um, musicians and lute players and 
people have tried to link them with the numbers of squares of the ceiling tiles to create mathematical formulas and think and some people have suggested it's a star gate to the beyond created by the aliens and all these fantastical theories but one of my favorites one that i think we might have covered in the podcast before and it's a story about the two pillars at the far end when you go in you notice all the beautiful symmetry about the place and you know there's the, the sculptures that don't quite match up but fit nicely different faces but equally balanced there's all the beautiful shapes that line up well on each side of the roof and on each side of the cloisters it it's what you'd imagine of of a very intricate chapel in that style but at the far end of the church there's one pillar using these geometric designs still brilliantly made clearly created by a master craftsman and designed by some of their brilliant knowledge of renaissance art and carving and on the other side of it you've got this pillar of natural forms and leaves curling up it and at the base of it there's dragons and it's completely mystical mythical piece and a huge contrast from one side to the other in what is otherwise a fairly symmetrical church and it poses a lot of questions as to why and the answer that is given for it in well there's no real language right then is that the first pillar the the geometric design the one inspired by the renaissance by the great carvers of old and uh, created by master craftsmen was the first pillar installed in the church and was meant to be there was meant to be two of them that were the centerpiece of this whole grand design and um, but when the sinclair came in he was unimpressed by this pillar he didn't think it was quite befitting what he had in mind what he'd envisioned for his grand legacy his to beat all other churches um, and so he'd asked the stonemason the, the master stonemason to go away and have another think about what he was doing and he thought and he spent ages designing and planning laboring over these things and he still couldn't come up with anything so he went traveling to look at the um great stonemasons of europe and be inspired by the churches in italy and the carvings done by the romans and the ancients and he came back from his great tour, having now been filled with inspirations to create an even more elaborate design than he'd done before. And when he arrived back, the second pillar was already carved. It had been carved by the apprentice. And it rose up more beautiful than his, more stunning than his, captivating anybody that came in with sweeping vines that ran around it. Dragons, the base, captured the imagination and focus point of the room hmm. now the stonemason so angered by the fact he could never have thought to create such a piece that it clearly come from some sort of divine vision and annoyed that it had been given to his apprentice to exercise threw his hammer at him broke breaking the skull of the apprentice and killing him on the spot now for that the master craftsman was hung and a stone carving made of him and a stone carving made of his apprentice or rather their their busts made and put in opposite corners of the church and the, the, the apprentice has a dent out of his head where the hammer would have hit him and they are left for the stone master stonemason to see what he did for all eternity looking across the church at each other and when you go you can see the master craftsman staring across the church at the dented apprentice's head and you can see the beautiful pillar made by the apprentice and also the very impressive pillar made by the master mason 
Basim, in my head, I've always compared it as like looking at art deco art versus art nouveau. One, you've got the beautiful geometric designs and intricacy, and it's glitzy and it's shimmery, and it's exactly what high society wanted. And on the other hand, you've got these stunning natural forms that capture the imagination. And uh, clearly, the apprentice's pillar was the one more befitting that the chapel seemed to have had in mind. There's Nigel, Rosalind Chapel. Yeah, I can't believe that about the master. Like, how could you, instead of appreciating something that someone else has made and being like, wow, amazing, look, look at what is possible, he killed him. The jealousy yeah. and the greed of people. It's honestly astounding. Yeah. And it is really such a, like, a tale of being humble, isn't it? Like, the apprentice that, that well, the, the, the student becomes the master. Yeah. And the master was not happy. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The re that should be the end of that sort of telling, is that, yeah, in the end, the master's not going to be happy with you. What I'd always thought was strange was, you know, the master had gone for the finding the inspiration and came back, and I don't know whether he was more annoyed at the apprentice for having created something probably better than he could have done or in such a different style that it was more befitting the surroundings than he could have ever done, or that the apprentice, without having to go anywhere, was divined with a vision because mm. it was said in some places he had this vision of the fire-breathing dragons and the vines curling up above them and from that carved in stone without having to go anywhere. Because So he was clearly blessed as the one designed to create this pillar. Mm. So whether that's what the stonemason was kind of maybe more frustrated at. I... Not that the apprentice could do it effortlessly, but that despite all of his efforts, the stonemason, the apprentice, was the one that was given the vision to be able to create what was needed. Yeah, I mean, I'm not saying that he acted properly by killing the apprentice, but I do have a little bit of sympathy for the stonemason. Because I think everyone has a little bit of a fear of, you know, something shiny and new coming up to take their place. Yeah, but relatively few people decide to brain them. I mean, so, yeah, know, no, like... <laughs> <laughs> you got a bit of balance. I'm not saying that's how you deal with the situation. <laughs> it's such a stunning building. I would recommend anyone go to it. And there's so much storytelling mm. in, like, not even just in the apprentice and the master pillar, but like around and the entire like, thing. Green men carving any everywhere. I can't yeah. remember how many they said there was in the. And like even aside from the whole like holy grail, yeah, myths and legends, holy grail. It's just connection. an amazing piece of craftsmanship. Yeah, and it's what is it? The 15th century? They come up for about 600 year old. old. Yeah. yeah. Wow. Yeah. yeah. It's a beautiful place. And their gift shop's quite good as well. <laughs> yeah, it's a nice <laughs> gift shop too. So always helps. It always amazes me as well how things that were built so long ago are even, well, they're still very well preserved today despite people going in and visiting and likely touching and mm -hmm. they, everything just seems to stand the wear of time very well. Rosalind Chapel did have to go, undergo quite a lot of restoration um, because oh. of like the kind of exposure of people because people's breaths and everything were causing algae to grow on the ceilings and yeah. things and then they were getting a lot of damp through the roof so they, for a while they had to have a full kind of con uh, steel construction pretty much over the whole chapel while they dried out all the stonework because in the Victorian era, they tried preservation techniques that they had at the time then, which was kind of 
to cover everything in a thin layer of like that plaster cementy thing. So that way it sealed everything in, but that sealed in the damp as well. So it caused every flake underneath it. So they had to strip that off, cover the whole church in a waterproof covering and leave it to dry out for, I can't remember, it was a good few years. And then only when the stone had naturally dried out under this covering could they then redo the roof and open it to public again. So that one did involve quite a lot of restrictions because it's made with sandstone, which is quite a porous material. I was going to say, uh, that's not, yeah, that's not that durable. Yeah, I think it's sandstone, maybe limestone. Don't want to get wrong on my podcast. I think it's also fun to point out the kind of modern folklore that we've got here um, in the uh, that's in the Dan Brown books, like the, the Holy Grail. Everyone, when you say Roslyn Chapel, everyone's like, oh yeah, that's where the Holy Grail is. And like, it's just a fun bit of kind of modern folklore that we've created. Um that yeah. exist, which I think is fun. Right. Okay, there's sandstone. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. So, oh, it's a, it is a fun church. I would very much like to know if the secret room does exist. Mm. Well, when we went down having a look, you could see bits and pieces of it, but there was definitely more to the crypt behind yeah. that as well, because you couldn't see into the main crypt. But, um, I, would, I would like to know what's in there, please. I think in, that, in one of the crypts it's some of the old lords or whatever, but I think they said there was a crypt behind or hidden somewhere else. I think maybe one of the Victorian lords had spent ages looking for another crypt or something and they didn't find one, so who knows if there is one? Who knows? Oh, a mystery. Thank you for listening to the Folklore Scotland podcast. We'll be back every week with more folkloric content from stories to analysis. The podcast is brought to you by Folklore Scotland, the charity that aims to make Scottish folklore accessible using digital platforms, telling the tales of the past with the technology of today. If you'd like to become a voluntary contributor or would like to get in touch, pop us an email at info at folklorescotland.com and you can find all of our social media as well as a list of sources in the show notes below. The charity also now has a Kofi page, which you can find in the show notes if you would like to help us continue the work that we do. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you next time. <laughs> <laughs>